Good morning, everyone. You guys okay? Are you guys just like in full summer swing? It's wrapping up. School starting. The grind. We're back at it again. I need... Sorry. Pause this for a second. Right there. Thanks. I was sweating so much, I can't keep my glasses on. This is bad. My shirt's soaked. All right. It's like Gallagher if you sit up in the front. Anybody remember Gallagher? Yeah. <laughs> okay. The older for the younger people have no clue what we're talking about. All right. Would you open your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians? So we've entitled, I just want to take a quick moment and just bring us a bit of a summary, if you will. We've entitled this series through the study of Galatians, No Other Gospel, which aren't actually, it's not actually a title that, that I came up with. Those are the words given in, in uh, the the kind of segment break in the ESV Bible. Um, but we adopted this title not because it suits our purposes. How many of you realize from time to time, well, maybe you don't, if you've, if you've done any sort of teaching or maybe you've just paid attention to series, sometimes people will do serious studies at churches and you're kind of wondering to yourself, is that actually what this book is about? Well, the book of Galatians is about this very truth. This is Paul's point in the book of Galatians. And so we, we've taken up this title because it's Paul's, one of Paul's primary efforts as he's writing to the churches in the Roman province of Galatia. And Paul has learned, it's come to his attention. We don't know how much time has necessarily transpired. <laughs> Let me say this. I don't know how much time has necessarily transpired. I think we could actually go back and check it because we can look at the book of Acts and when the church was established in Galatia and, and surmise from Galatians. That's funny. There's no way of knowing when Paul wrote this letter. It's unknowable. It's unknowable. <laughs> oh, that's funny. It's funny the things you just say. We don't really know, but most other people do. But Paul has, but it's, it's come to Paul's attention, though. It's come to Paul's attention that what's been happening is there is those from outside, and these are zealous Judaizers that are coming in now to the church, the, the new church, this early birth church, and it's bringing with them a gospel, that, a gospel that isn't really the true gospel. And so Paul has learned of this, and so he's writing to them to, to appeal to them not to listen to the lies, not to listen to the teaching of the false teachers, but to remember what the true and genuine and authentic gospel is. And it's interesting that it seems as no sooner was the church birthed that already the gospel was under attack. I thought about that this week as I was, look, I was thinking, man, that's remarkable. Sometimes I think we think here we are just grinding it out and fighting for every inch to maintain what God has taken in the kingdom. And for us in our own hearts or in our families or our communities, we feel like we're just, just engaged oftentimes in a battle for the purity of the gospel. But here is a bit of a consolation, church. If you think you're alone, even Paul was dealing with this and if anybody had probably a bit of moment for frustration, it would be Paul. To see the hand of the Lord 
in such a mighty way, birth the church, and then it comes under attack by those who appear, who appear to be preaching and teaching the true gospel when in fact they're not. And so we ourselves have a bit of a similar moment here some 2,100 plus years later. Things haven't changed, have they? We're fighting ourselves. We have to maintain the purity and the authenticity of the true and genuine gospel. We have to fight for it in our own hearts. And we have to fight for it in our own minds and in our understanding. Because everything within the spirit of this age wants to rob what is true and genuine or dilute. Even if it isn't just to completely steal, but it's just to slowly undermine and want to, to, to dilute what is true in our own hearts. Isn't that true? And so I posed this question in some form or fashion a few weeks ago when we began this series. How is it that we prepare ourselves to fend off error? What can we do to ensure that we are not diluted? It's to know what is inherently true in Christ's gospel. If we want to combat error, know the truth. It's as simple as that. And so in chapter 1, Paul is, is saying to them, don't listen to the false teachers don't listen to those who are causing trouble. They are liars. They were those who would want to, to dilute the clarity and the purity of what's true. And I just felt like there's not been a greater need seemingly, at least maybe in our lifetimes, for that same admonition to ring true. Don't listen to what is false, church. Don't be consumed. Don't allow yourself to be fed by what intentionally is, wants to subvert the truthfulness of the gospel. Be careful as to what fills you. Be careful as to where you go for quote-unquote truth. So three weeks ago, I spoke about what this gospel is as laid out by Paul in verses 1 through 5. And just to summarize it, it's this. The true gospel is the profession that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of the Father and to his glory. That is what the gospel is. Christ Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of the Father. And then in week two, Rick spoke about how this gospel is not a message of human wisdom. Nor does it come from man, but in fact, it comes solely by revelation from God to man. How do we know if it's genuine? If it's revealed by God. In verse 12 of chapter 1, Paul says, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, Who had set me free apart from before I was born and who called me by his grace in order that I might preach him. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is a revelation of Jesus Christ to our hearts, but it results in something, that we might preach Christ, that he might be glorified in this age. And then he goes on to explain in chapter two that like the revelation he received, so too was his calling to preach to the Gentiles also from God and not from man. And this too was attested 
to by the apostles in Jerusalem once they had, and this is the phrase that Paul uses, he says that the apostles perceived the grace that was given to him. So his calling, like the gospel, didn't come from man, it wasn't taught to him, but it came from Christ. And then in verses 11 through 14, which is going to lead up, we're going to read that again as we read through 15 to 21 this morning. For the purpose of his argument on what the gospel is, Paul recounts the story to the Galatians where he opposes the hypocrisy of Peter because before some, Peter was falling back into a law-regulated righteousness. And this is what's remarkable. Peter was guilty of the very same thing that the Galatians were guilty of. That's what Paul's point in verses 11 through 14 is. Peter was attempting to do the very thing that the Galatians were doing, which was to achieve righteousness by the addition of human effort to a gospel that says, believe solely on what Christ has done. And now Paul, he's going to show us and tell us in verses 11 through 21, or really in 15 through 21, which we'll concentrate on this morning, he's going to tell us how righteousness is achieved through Christ's gospel. So let's look at the text together. I'm going to read from the ESV, and we'll also have it up. I'm going to start in verse 11, and I know Kev read it last week, but I just want to give us a little bit of a runway as we get into verses 15 through 21. And may I just ask the Lord this morning, Father, we thank you for your word. And we hold it in our hand this morning with a sobriety of heart and mind, recognizing, Lord, that you have preserved this word from century to century, generation to generation. Lord, you have passed it down in your wisdom and as a provision that the word of God is profitable for every aspect of our life. We thank you for your word, Lord. Lord, we receive your word today with a gladness of heart. And Lord, we ask, transform our thinking. Conform us into the image of you. Remove that which hinders our growth and our advancement. Remove, Lord, error and deception in our heart and replace it, Father, with truth by your spirit and to your glory, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your word, word. Amen. So Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. But when Cephas, who is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews, we know who the circumcision party is? That's just those who are of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all of them, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ 
so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. Are you picking up the, the, what Peter is saying here? He's, he's continued now. He, he's quoted what he said to Peter and now he's continuing his thought process and he's saying, for though we are Jews, we understood that as Jews, believing in Christ is an admonition that we cannot be perfected by the law itself. That no righteousness can be achieved by the works that are done. In verse 17, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For, though, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now, I, excuse me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Amen. This portion of verse 15 through 21, is, it's, it's widely believed that Galatians was Paul's first letter. And what Paul presents here, we now understand to be the foundation and, quite frankly, just the pillar of the Christian faith. That is that justification or righteousness, which I'll talk more about this morning, is achieved through faith and faith alone. I want to share with you, if you're familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism, question number 60 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Would you put it up here for me, Matt? The question is this, how are you righteous before God? How art thou righteous before God? And the answer is this, and I want us to just let this, meditate upon this and let it sink into our hearts. We are righteous before God only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, so that Though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them, and I'm and I'm still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding, God without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Even so, as if I never had had nor committed any sin. Yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such a benefit with a believing heart. It's such a beautiful statement, church, as to this, that righteousness is attained through faith and faith alone. Insofar that is. As we put our faith in Christ Jesus, and by doing so, he counts us as righteous, or he justifies us, and I'll speak more about it, but the word justification is a legal, judicial term that means that we have been um, announced or pronounced as not guilty before God. So to say that we are justified by faith means that through our faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus gives to us the merits 
or excuse me, God the Father gives to us the merits of Jesus Christ as being our own. And I love the way that this question is answered. It says, even though my conscience accuses me, even though I continue to sin, even though I have transgressed and transgressed and transgressed, yet God, or what are the two words we love? But God. But God, being rich in mercy, has credited to me what was Christ's in order that I might be counted as one of his own. And so in this portion now of Galatians chapter 2, Paul is going to hit full stride in his argument in declaring that the only way to right standing before God, or the only way to stand before God with the pronouncement of not guilty because of our own sin is through the justification that comes through Christ Jesus. That is the only way. And that's what Paul is now putting forth. And these two elements, justification and faith, they're the crux of Paul's argument for Jesus' gospel of grace. And Paul points to his own life and, and the lives of the other apostles for this argument. If justification could be attained through works and human effort, would they not, of all people, have attained it? Paul, a devout Pharisee, Jew amongst Jews, following the law to its absolute and uttermost, certainly this would have counted as righteousness if following the law counted for something. Would it not? But it is not by works. And for the Jews, works was adherence to the law. It's not by works. No matter how honorable or seemingly righteous that individual is, that man or woman is pronounced guilty before God because of sin. And no matter of righteous work could fulfill that pronouncement. Why? Because we are dead in our sin, brothers and sisters. Because the sinful nature that we are born with condemns us before God, even in the womb before we are brought into this world. And what Adam lost because of sin, God restored through one man, Jesus Christ. We couldn't do it because of our sinful nature. But Jesus, being truly God and truly man, did it for us and for all of the world. And I love, we often use the, the phrase gospel of grace, right? We know that it's the gospel of grace. But what is grace, church? Grace is a gift. Grace is something given freely, unmerited, unmerited and unwarranted. But God, being rich in mercy... Faith produces righteousness because God treats us as if we were as righteous as Jesus is. And God credits us with his righteousness. John Calvin said that faith is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Faith is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation.
In um, 2018, Shannon and I, I might have shared a portion of the story with you, so I'll just give you the quick broad strokes. But Shannon and I had rented a home for nine, ten years, and we were notified after nine or ten years that our house was going to be sold. And our landlord gave us 60 days, and we just were like full tilt. I mean, 60 days seems like a while, but man, it was nothing after nine or ten years. And the Lord provided a way through the generosity unprompted by another individual, unprompted on our part, but prompted by the Lord. And this individual gave to Shannon and I a large sum of money to allow us to purchase the home that we now live in. It was miraculous. I'll tell you the story if you ever want to hear it sometime. Come and ask me about it. And this individual transferred a large sum of money into our bank account, and I remember the day when I opened my bank account and there was this big old chunk of cash sitting in there. And I went, holy smokes. I didn't work for this. I didn't earn it. It was out of their generosity. It was a gracious gift given to Shannon and I that we didn't deserve, but we received. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus Christ has done for us. The salvation that we have received is the very same thing. When we open up, if you will, our spiritual ledger, we see that nothing that we did ever amounts to the total that Christ has credited to us. But yet our account is in surplus, church. Our lives are a surplus because of of what Christ did. And every day, brothers and sisters, open up that ledger and look at the surplus that was given to you. And remind yourselves what the gospel is and how it has been given for your sake. What Jesus did on the cross, what Jesus did in and through the tomb, it counts for us. And as the Heidelberg Catechism says, it's as though we did it ourselves. When God sees us, He sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ. One time I remember teaching on this fact and I stood here because I'm a pretty big guy. And if my daughter were to come up and stand behind me, come here, babe, we'll do it again. Come on. I need somebody small. Come on. Come on. Look at my beautiful girl. Okay. Do this. Okay. Ella is me. And I am a very poor Jesus. But listen, when you see Ella, what do you see? You see me. This is what it is for us in Christ. When, Christ, when God looks at us, he sees us through the merits of what Jesus has done. What an object lesson. See, that was easy. Yeah, go ahead. Great job. That was, I mean, I couldn't have done it better. You did great. See, and this is why the moralist gospel collapses under its own weight. Because rather than beginning with what Christ did, it begins with, I do, or I have done. What have I done for God? What has God done for me, is the question that we are to be asking ourselves. And so before it even gets going, the gospel of moralism collapses and falls flat. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is going to expound on this faith-only declaration. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. While we're turning there, can I just say, I know that I'm saying things this morning that you already know and have already heard, but can I say, as in the words of Peter, that I want to stir us up by way of reminder. Can we remind ourselves, church? Because in so reminding ourselves, as I said earlier, what are we doing? We are bolstering up our faith. We are, we are building up, if you will, the defense walls within our hearts and our minds of that's right, this is true. And as we do that, we are more capable and able to fend off what is wrong and what is an error. So even though we might not be blatantly living for the gospel of moralism, let's say, how easy is it for us to identify when we have those tendencies and we fall back into that work mentality. Ephesians chapter two, Paul's going to expound on this faith only, and I've already quoted, I, 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 it was a spoiler alert, I already blew my crescendo of it all, but that's all right, we're gonna read it anyway, because Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10 are just some of the most beautiful words within scripture as it pertains to what Christ has done for us through grace. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so Paul's giving us quickly a summary statement of life outside of Christ. Following the prince of the power of the air in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. There's that inherent sin nature that we are born into. And we carried out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But let's say it together, church. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Excuse me, I'm gonna cough. Live together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For grace you have been saved through faith. And why? This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's the grace of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast, so that God gets all the glory, so that there is no confusion who is at work in our lives. It is Christ and Christ alone. For we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As deep, and as, even as we might have struggled or wrestled to weave all those thoughts together and to process it as quickly in our hearts and minds. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is simple. It is simple. It's easy to be understood. Hello? Hello? It's all right. Nobody look at him. No one look at him. It doesn't matter. It's all Bobby, it's okay. You're... You're all right. You don't have to leave, Bob. You're all right. 
<laughs> oh boy. Okay, let's get back on track. Did you guys notice as we read through, I love, there might not be in any, any other text that I love prepositions more than in the Word of God. In and with and to and for. Is to a preposition? Yeah, it is. And for and from. I got my fact checker here in the front. No, just go like this if I'm wrong. So having, because having established the foundational principle that righteousness comes by faith. In verse 20, Paul, he's going to go on to explain that this crediting or the word that was in the catechism, if you picked it up, was imputing. This imputation, if you will. How it takes place, and he describes it in verse 20. Look at verse 20 again of Galatians, not of Ephesians. He says that, now listen to the prepositions. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so Paul now, he moves on from the argument, okay, justification comes by faith alone, but now what actually transpires when we are declared as not guilty before God? How does that actually take place? I mentioned this during worship, uh, I think it was last week when I was leading, that the miracle of the Christian life is our union with Christ Jesus. This is one of the most beautiful and profound truths throughout Scripture, church. If you've not taken the time to understand or to study the mystical union of a believer with Christ Jesus, please do so. Because it is incredibly faith-stirring and just planting your feet firmly on the rock that is Jesus Christ. And it has everything to do with how we are justified. Justification is complete in us because in the moment of believing, for the very first time, God, in response to our faith, takes everything that He has ever done and gives it to us as though it is something that we have done ourselves. Think about it. Anything that he has done is credited to you and to I as our own. And now remember with Ella up here, it's not as though he just remembers, oh yeah, that Jesus did this. No, no, he sees you and he sees what Jesus has done. That's why Paul will say, we are the righteousness of Christ. Not even that we have just been made righteous, we are the righteousness of Christ Jesus. The result now of what Christ has done is transformation of our literal lives to now being righteous. Isn't this amazing? I, I, I don't know that we could ever tire from remembering and reflecting and believing on these things. Writer Philip Riken, he puts it this way. God attaches us to the events of Christ's life so that they become a part of our lives. His story, the story of the cross and the empty tomb becomes our story. That's amazing. 
Because this union with Christ through faith, it's as though we were present with Jesus in each of his redemptive acts. Think about that for a minute. Do you believe that? Because of our union with Christ, by the simple act of our faith, by saying, I believe what he has done, it's as though we were present with Christ in each and every one of his redemptive acts. Not just the cross, but the tomb as well. And the resurrection from the tomb. We were present that day. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Imagine the significance of that statement for a Jew whose whole work, whose whole life was caught up in doing the right thing. And now suddenly what does Paul say? Christ has done the right thing. That's not I, but it's Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It isn't enough, brothers and sisters, to, to, to simply consider and meditate upon Christ's crucifixion. Instead, listen, we have to go further in our understanding to believe that we were mystically present with Christ that day and that his body, sorry, that, that our body of flesh, that our body of sin was crucified with Christ that day. What a radical shift this is in our thinking. What happens when we really believe this? What happens when we understand that, that, our, that our body of sin and flesh was crucified with Christ? Not that, listen, it isn't that our presence fulfilled the righteous demand of God. We weren't the sacrifice. It was only Christ. But what Christ accomplished through our union with him he accomplished as though we accomplished it. That's what it means that we were present with Christ in the crucifixion. What happens to our thinking? What happens to our life when we begin to think this way? When the, when the lines, if you will, are blurred between what is Christ and what is me? Brothers and sisters, this is new creation life. This is what it means now, begin to think about now all these different statements that if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and behold, the new has come. How does that change our life? It changes it dramatically. Because now it's not I who live, but it's Christ. See, for Paul, it became it's so blurred that now it wasn't even just, it's my life now that's changed because of Christ. No, it's my life that was completely exchanged and brought in anew and created new by Jesus Christ. And now it's Christ who is in me. It's Christ who is enabling me. It's Christ who's empowering me. It's Christ who's revealing to me. It's Christ who's compelling me. It's Christ who's sustaining me. It's not just me that's being sustained because I read the word of God. It's new creation life being lived out in the flesh. Oh. Does that blow your mind? I hope I'm communicating this well. Because, listen, I understand this takes a revelation for us to understand this and believe this. But brothers and sisters, it's worth 
pushing in and pushing in to take a hold of it, to understand it. Even if your brain is going a bit tilt right at the moment, keep pushing in to understand that what is Christ's is our own. Remember, I won't put it up on the screen because I don't have it, but you remember now, I've put up a few times John Calvin's Institute on the Lord's Table, and he talks about that through the Lord's Table, we're actually not just in remembrance, but we're acting upon by the grace of God, and, and it's as though everything that, did, that Christ did was ours, and everything that is ours is his. Do you remember that kind of exchange phrase? Well, anyway, that's what it was. But it isn't even so much that just what was his is ours, but then there is also what's ours is his. The sinfulness, the fleshliness, all that Christ took upon himself. And so may we get beyond just the joy and the beauty that the crucifixion is, but go beyond just simply remembering the crucifixion And let's get to the point where we understand and we believe our actual presence, if you will, with Christ that day. And what's more than church, if we're united in death and we receive the benefits of what that accomplished, then so too we're united with him in his resurrection, in the work of the tomb. That too is ours. Look at Romans chapter 6. Where am I? I'm going the wrong way. Romans chapter 6. Lord, I love you. Father, I worship you this morning. I am so incredibly humbled that you have seen me, that you chose me, that you loved me, and you have chosen to pour out your mercy upon my life. Father, would you open our eyes to your understanding? Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that we might know the breadth and the height and the depth of the love of Christ and the work that that love accomplished for us. And may we live, Lord Jesus, out of this truth and reality that it is a life exchanged. A life of sin becomes a life of righteousness. A life of wrath becomes a life of mercy. Open our hearts, Lord, I pray by your spirit to understand this truth. Romans chapter 6, look at verse 5. Now this is Paul. Now Romans is going to come later after Galatians and a lot of what we see in Galatians is just expounded brilliantly in Romans. So now Paul's going to flesh out this even more, this this reality that the redemptive act of the resurrection from the tomb is also ours through our union with Christ Jesus through faith. What shall we say then, Paul's going to say? Are we to continue? Oh, sorry, I went to one. Go to verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, oh, listen to this language. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died 
has been set free from sin. And now if we have died with Christ, there it is again, those beautiful pronouns. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, now here's the kicker, you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Why? Because there we were that day. And because there we were, so now consider yourself. And now he talks about, so, he, so it's, it's faith in Christ is our justification, and our justification has come because of our mystical union with Jesus Christ through faith. And the result of that now, the, the being worked out in the minutia is this, that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Sin no longer reigns over our lives. Now, will we still sin? Yeah, everybody do this. Everyone, please do this. Yes, we will still sin. Why? Because we are still of the flesh. Our sinful nature still exists as long as these bodies exist. But brothers and sisters, this is our hope. This is our assurance. This is our confidence that through faith, what Christ accomplished is ours and what Christ has awaiting for us will also certainly be ours. I hope that gives you hope today. I hope that brings you joy today. Martin Luther said that by faith, you are so cemented to Christ. I like that. You're so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person, which cannot be separated, but remains attached to him forever. I love that language. Why? Because there's nothing that I can do. See, this settles the issue of whether or not salvation can be lost. It settles it. There's not even an argument. It wasn't yours to gain. Christ gained it. How can you take away something that Christ has done? You can't. You can believe in it, or you can choose not to believe in it. But the reality is what's done is done in Christ. And we have been so cemented that it is now not just us, but it's not just me, but it's us. It's me and Christ together. That's amazing. This is amazing. And so Paul is picking up here in Galatians again, he's just in verses 20, that it's, I'm, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's not even me now who lives. I don't live. It's Christ in me that lives. And now as a result of that, this life that I live, I don't live for myself. I don't live to myself. I don't live to the enemy. I live to Christ and to Christ alone because it's Christ in me. And Christ cannot lie. Look at me just looking for Galatians. Here it is. Let me just land with this. And then we're gonna come to the Lord's table this morning. So when we understand the gospel in this way, when we understand the breadth of the gospel like this. When God reveals to our hearts the truth of what I've just been saying this morning, the fake, the false, the counterfeit, all that stuff, it becomes so abundantly clear to us. 
The doctrine of our union with Christ, it stands in direct opposition to one of the most prominent false gospels of the last century, church. That is the gospel of self. Our union with Christ, as I have just described it, that it's Christ in me and me with Christ, and the two have blended to become one. And it's not my life, but it's Christ's life that's in me. It obliterates any, any semblance of the self-gospel. It does away with it, church. In your own heart, let the work of the Lord remove any, any ounce or any bit of self-gospel that exists. Self-indulgence, self-improvement, self-sufficiency, self-love, self-autonomy, self-improvement, they all stand guilty of one of the most obvious offenses. They originate from right here rather than right here. Do we recognize it? Do we recognize it in ourselves? Self-autonomy, I love that one. My flesh loves that one. Don't tell me what to do. I have my own liberties. I'm my own person. I make my own decisions. Don't impose upon me your regulation, your requirement, or your opinion even. My, that's mine, you guys. That's one of them at least. How does the gospel address and remove the residue of that sin in my heart. It's by remembering it's Christ. It's Christ in me. It's not me. It's him. It's not me. It's him. One of the most uh, prominent philosophers and political activists of the 20th century was a man by the name of Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre. Jean-Paul Sartre. And he famously said this, you are your life and nothing else. He's, he's one of the fathers of the existential movement. You are your life and nothing else. His claim was that we have no other purpose than the one that we set ourselves. We have no other destiny than the one that we create. Brothers and sisters, this is pervasive within culture. This type of thinking, how this has become foundational to cultural philosophy, now it pervades even just commercials and seemingly benign things that we engage with all the time. We are what we determine, essentially, is what that says. But the gospel of Jesus... It says that it's not what we say about our life, but it's what Christ says. It's not what we determine, but it's what God has sovereignly decided. It's no longer I, it's Christ. Christ what? Christ alive in me. Christ enabling me. Christ motivating me to obedience. Keeping me by my union with him. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing new under the sun, right? We've heard these lies before. Learn to recognize what is false by knowing what is true. 
It goes all the way back to the beginning. What did the serpent say to Eve? When you eat the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him. It's an elevation of man to where only God resides. That is a lie. It's from the beginning, just recapitulated over and over in different language, in different cultures, different generations. There's nothing new under the sun, brothers and sisters. Let us not live to the false teachers. Do not listen to the false gospel. Do not listen to the lies, to the deceit that would dilute you, but listen to what is true. Know what is true. Let it seep into you. What do they call that? Osmosis. <laughs> While you sleep at night. Let me just say this to end, brothers and sisters, from Revelation. John says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen.